0: Uh, there's something wonderful about making a fresh start, a new beginning, uh, like buying a new car. The clock reads zero kilometers. It's got that new car smell, it's got no dents or leaks. Uh, or redecorating your house with a fresh coat of paint. We've just done that at our place, and it's lovely, it's bright and clean and fresh. It's like you're living in a brand new house, well necessarily that with us, but it feels like it. Uh, Or what about a fresh start in life? Maybe you've just started university or Bible college, and there are so many exciting possibilities in front of you. Uh, Or perhaps it's a sea change, leaving the busyness of the city for a slower lifestyle. Uh, Bill and Erica are hoping for some more of that this year. Or what about a midlife crisis? Uh, You look back over your life and you're disappointed and you regret some choices, some missed opportunities, and you want a fresh start. Maybe a new hobby, or a house, or a career, or a Harley Davidson, or something. Uh, Or what about a fresh start in relationships? A close friendship, or maybe a marriage. At one time, there was and intimacy and shared experiences. But then there was a series of misunderstandings and thoughtless words and selfish actions and hurt feelings. And before long, what was animated and close and warm was silent and cold and distant. Wouldn't it be nice if you could get a fresh start with relationships? The chance to build something new, to put mistakes behind you. Is a fresh start really possible? Well, the great news from this passage is that it is. God makes you an offer to start again. Did you see it there? Verse 17, right in the middle of this section. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's wonderful language, isn't it? It's as dramatic a change as when God created the universe. He spoke and it came into existence. One moment it wasn't there and then it was. And that's what God does with the person who becomes a Christian. It's not just a change in appearance. It's not a change in appearance. It's not that externals have changed. It's not simply that you've modified your behaviour or your looks. God makes the whole person new to anyone who is in Christ, joined to him in faith. As we read the context, the verses on either side of verse 17, we'll see that that dramatic change, it begins with a new relationship with God, a new status. God changes us from enemies to allies. From strangers to friends. The word is reconciliation. It's there in the very next verse, verse 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Reconciliation, it's about saying sorry on the one hand, and it's about forgiveness on the other hand. It's about mending fences. And the incredible thing about the reconciliation between us and God, this fresh start, is that God is the one who repairs the relationship. Do you notice what it says there in that verse? All this is from God who reconciled us to himself. Normally it's the other way around, isn't it? With human relationships, we wait for the person who's at fault to make the first move, to initiate the repair. Especially if we're feeling hurt and upset. Blow them. You know, they, If they want to come and apologise, let them do it. But with God, God makes the first move. He's the offended party. We're the ones who've wandered away. But God bridges the gap. He offers us this fresh start. It's an incredible offer. So listen carefully. If you're not yet a Christian, it's an offer for you to accept. If you are... It's an opportunity, it's a reality to rejoice in. It's a reality to live out the consequences of. So firstly, the message. What is this message of reconciliation? Well, have a look from verse 14. Paul is talking about himself and the other apostles, those who deliver God's message. And here's what he says. Verse 14, he says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore, all died. We'll come back to the first part of that verse later, but the key to that message is there at the end. We're convinced that one died for all. He's talking about Jesus and his death, and he describes it as a substitution. One died in place of many. There's a barrier between us and God, a breakdown in relationship. We've ignored him and insist on ruling our own life and God's judgment for that, his just judgment, is to give us what our hearts desire. He will give us separation from him eternally. Now that is a terrible prospect, whether we realise it or not. But rather than leave us where we deserve, God chooses to offer us reconciliation the offer of being changed from his enemies to his friends. When we repent of our sin, he forgives us. And so reconciliation happens. Because, of course, there can be no reconciliation unless there's repentance and forgiveness. The basic problem, though, is that to forgive is, is unjust, to forgive is unfair. The offender does not deserve forgiveness. The the offender deserves punishment. And so because God is just, he, he punishes Jesus in place of us. His one perfect life is offered in the place of many sinful lives. One died for all. One of the techniques for fighting bushfires is backburning. They burn a section of bush, they remove all of the fuel Uh, and it creates a barrier between the fire and what they're trying to protect from the fire. The one small section is burned to prevent much more from being destroyed. That section bears the heat so that the rest don't have to. And when Jesus died for all, he suffered the fire, he bore the wrath of God's judgment so that we might be spared that judgment. And you can see what that achieves at God's end, down in verse 19, where it says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. They'd sinned, but it's not counted to their account. It's not uh, not accounted to them. They've been acquitted. God doesn't overlook the offence, but he punishes an innocent one on behalf of the guilty so that the guilty can be declared innocent. That transfer is described again down in verse 21, where it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin." For us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the substitution? One innocent one takes guilt, and the result is that many receive innocence, acquittal. Now there's the offer. There's the offer of reconciliation. Now that's Paul's message. God has prepared this wonderful gift of reconciliation, of friendship, of a fresh start, and Paul's job is to offer it to people. In verse 20 he says, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The response for people is simply to accept the offer. Paul pleads with people to recognise that they've ignored him to turn back to him in repentance, to accept the gift of Jesus' death in their place. And when they do that, God's promise is forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation and a fresh start. That day when God does that becomes the first day of the rest of your life. Verse 17 describes it. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation the old has gone, the new has come. We don't become a different person. We don't change personality or brain. We have a new standing before God. He gives us a new heart. A new heart provides us with a new direction and a new motivation. He fills us with his spirit. We have a new ability to live pleasing God. We have a new future. The day that you accept God's offer of reconciliation really is the first day of the rest of your life. It's no wonder the Bible talks about it as being born again. Is that something you've done? Be reconciled to God. If you're not sure about that, if you're not sure whether you have done that, can I encourage you to find... Peter and uh, join the Christianity Explored course starting next, next Sunday, Sunday lunchtime. Christianity Explored. Well, the second point in the outline is to do with the messenger, the one who delivers the message. Paul's de- Paul is describing himself, he's describing his group of, uh, of people who are uh, sharing God's message. But God expects these same things from all Christians. From you and from me, God's usual method of delivering his message, his offer of a fresh start, is one ordinary person telling another person. Uh, It's terribly inefficient. It really does not make sense if you were doing a management time motion study to get these fallible, fallen, uh, unfaithful people to deliver this amazing message, but that's God's method. Verse 18, he says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Ministry sounds like a fancy word just for professionals, either for, uh, for pastors of churches or you know, ministers of the government departments. You know, sound like they're very high, high people. But ministry is actually just a word for servant. It's a very normal word for servant. God has given ordinary people the job of being servants, specifically servants who distribute his offer of reconciliation. On the one hand, we're servants. Verse 20, he uses a different picture. He calls us ambassadors. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. An ambassador is an official representative. That's what Christians are. God's official spokesmen and spokeswomen. As though God were making his appeal through us. We represent God in delivering his message. Now there's a heavy responsibility in that, isn't there? Uh, Do you feel the weight of that? You should. You may be the only Christian... Your friend, your family, your work colleagues know. It's interesting, the same word that's used of Christ standing in our place is used of us standing in Christ's place. When it says in verse 14 and 15, One died for all, on behalf of all, And in verse 21 it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, on behalf of us. That's Jesus who stands in our place. But in verse 20 it says, We are ambassadors for Christ, on behalf of Christ. Verse 20 again says, We implore you on Christ's behalf. Same word again. We are standing in Christ's place. Christ has stood up for us. Our job is to stand up for him. So it begs the question, doesn't it? What sort of ambassador are you? you, Are you a worthy representative? Not just in your words, but in your lifestyle. Does your lifestyle, does it support... Or does it undermine the words of your message? God is making his appeal through us. Now, on the one hand, there's a great encouragement in those words, but also a great challenge. Firstly, it's a great comfort. God is making his appeal. You see, all the resources of heaven are behind you, God's Spirit guides your words gives you courage. God's spirit gives you the words to say and God opens the eyes of the people you're speaking to. There's a great comfort in that. But there's also a great challenge, isn't there? God is working through you. Which means you actually need to take that responsibility up, don't you? Pick up the tools to encourage, represent, convince, persuade people. You need to take your light out from under its basket and actually open your mouth. Take the great news of God's fresh start to people who need it. If, like most of us, you need a motivation to do that, then let's listen to Paul's motivation, the third section in the outline. What is Paul's motivation? The message, the messenger, the motivation? He's obviously motivated. Verse 11, he tries to persuade. Verse 20, he implores people. He pleads. Chapter 6, verse 1 We urge you to receive God's grace. Now, this message meant everything to Paul. So, so, where did he get this motivation from? Well, there's at least two sources, I think. Two motivations. Firstly, jump back up to verse 10. Uh, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. Do you see the motivation? Judgment is real. Those who don't accept God's offer of reco- reconciliation will be found guilty. Now Paul wants everyone to escape God's condemnation. I was watching Bondi Rescue uh, a little while ago about surf lifesavers at Bondi Beach. Uh, This particular day the waves were huge, the the rips, the the, the currents were on both sides of the flags, both both ends of the beach and the overseas tourists and others were getting dragged out to sea. And before they knew it, their lives were in danger. They didn't realize it. They thought, oh, look at this lovely beach. But the lifesavers knew the danger. And so they were pleading with people. They were urging and shouting and blowing whistles and waving their arms. They knew the danger. And that motivated them to speak. People are in real danger, judgment is real. Paul implores people to be reconciled to God. But it's not just non-Christians who will face judgment. Notice verse 10. It says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I think Paul sees in that a motivation for himself. Paul himself will stand before Jesus and have to give an account of what he has done in his life. Now, there's a motivation in that, isn't there, Uh, to tell people about Jesus? His deeds uh, will not be judged and found guilty, and that's not the sort of judgment we're talking about. Jesus has paid for his sin. He will be found innocent on Judgment Day, but he will still have to give an account. He's been given talents to use, and he will have to give an account to his master. And so because of that, he has a respectful fear of God's opinion on that day. And so he works now to persuade people. Judgment is real. I think if you've been around church for a while and I asked you, is judgment real? I think probably most of you would say yes. You'd say it with your heads. But but do your actions actually reflect what you think up here? Does the fact of judgment motivate you to open your mouth? Does the fact of judgment motivate you to give your money to support gospel ministries? Does the fact of judgment motivate you to consistently and fervently pray for people's salvation? Well, Paul's second motivation—it's in verse fourteen. And we're going to finish on that verse. He says, For Christ's love compels us. I love that word. Different translations use slightly different words, but I just love that one, compel. Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all. Paul's driving motivation was his unshakable confidence that Jesus had died for him. I think it's incredibly, intensely personal. It's not just theological, oh, in in this broad sense, Jesus has died for, he's died for me. He's taken my place. He's died my death because he loves me. What love, my God, could hold you to the tree To bear that overwhelming debt for me. The son of heaven leaves the father's side. The healer bleeds. The life was made to die. What love, my God, so, so gracious and extreme. Was strong enough to come and fight for me. To go through hell and down into the grave. And raise me up to see you face to face. We sing those words, don't we? Paul knew that truth. He didn't just know it, it compelled him. His whole life was driven by the desire to measure up to that love for him, to respond to it. Do you notice how he puts it in verse 15? And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That's the Christian life. Compelled by love so that we live for the one who died for us. Like a a new couple in love. They will do anything for that other person. They will drive to Melbourne and back for the weekend. They, They will do anything. Compelled by love. That's the Christian life. No no longer living for yourself, but for him who died for you. Revelation 4 describes 24 elders. I began the service by reading this. 24 elders uh, represents all humanity, probably. And uh, in heaven, they, they fall down before God and they worship him. And it says, they lay their crowns before the throne. And say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. The the crowns are symbolic, Not, not simply that God deserves our words, but that he deserves us, everything. What we want no longer matters. We are no longer king. God is king. Christ's love compels us. It is his opinion that matters. His choices choices that matter, his priorities that matter, his approval that matters. We live for the one who died for us. We know what it is to be a new creation. And so we try to persuade people to be reconciled to God. Let's live that out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, some wonderful promises in this verse, some wonderful reminders about your heart, uh, your message, your offer. Uh, We pray that uh, those of us who are not yet Christians might understand your offer, that you would give them the faith to trust you, to turn to you, that they may be made a new creation. Uh, For others of us, Lord, who Who are new creations, uh, please help us to appreciate the great love Jesus has for us, that we may respond to it uh, with a suitable measure of um, devotion and uh, a suitable response. Uh, Lord, for all of it, we pray that you would honour yourself and honour your son, and it's in his name that we pray.